please turn your Bibles to Judges. I want you to turn to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6, but I want to, look at, I want to read Judges chapter 2 together, a little, little bit of the first part of Judges chapter 2 together. There's a lot here. We're not going to get through all of Judges uh, 6 this morning, all that we, I wanted to, but we're going to uh, get a big picture of what's going on. And that's really the intention of this whole series, the promise of the gospel, seeing Christ in all of Scripture. Judges chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first five verses of Judges chapter 2 in our reading together, and then look at uh, Judges chapter 6 in a moment. But what's happening here is Judges chapter 2, the first five verses, help serve as a, a good gateway between what we looked at last week with the story of Caleb and the conquest of Canaan and this period of the Judges. This is a, a very dark book. There are a lot of very depressing things that take place in the book of Judges. And so uh, it's a little bit dreary, a little bit hard, and yet it's God's Word. It's there to instruct us and teach us. And so hopefully we can be encouraged together this morning as we look at His Word. So if you would, if you're able to, uh, stand with me as we look at Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Read that together. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, please be seated. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we, we thank you for your word, even, even your difficult words that are, that are hard to read hard process, and we pray that you would work in our hearts this morning as we read them. We thank you this morning for those in our church who have uh, served our country, who have worked to preserve the freedoms that you have granted to us from, from, from the freedoms that come from you, and so we are grateful this morning for those. We're thankful for their families, and we pray that we would be good stewards of those to whom you've entrusted to us. We pray this morning also for uh, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ who are encountering persecution throughout the world. We think of uh, pastors who are in prison and in danger of losing their lives because of their faithfulness to the gospel. We think of, of, of families who are suffering loss as a result of being steadfast in their faith. And we think of those who are serving in very dangerous places. We pray for your preservation of their lives. We pray for the preservation of our confession, that we who are in different places suffering for our faith would be strong, and for those of us who are here, that we would be strengthened by their strong profession of faith and reflect that in our lives as well. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament, looking at different sections of Scripture and seeing the overarching story of God's great plan of redemption in Scripture. We're looking uh, at 
individual stories, and as we look at those individual stories, we're seeing God's, God's big picture and how those individual stories fit into the big picture. And the goal, after we're done with these 10 weeks or so going through the, the big picture of the Old Testament, is that we could open our Bibles and we could, could read wherever we find ourselves and understand how what we're reading fits into that, that big picture of Scripture and how the person and the work of Jesus Christ can be found on every page. And this morning, as you know, we're turning to a book called Judges, and a book called Judges that deals with the uh, people of Israel as they exist in a time between the conquest and between the time of the establishment of the monarchy. And kind of the big theme of the book of Judges is how there is a need for a king. There's a need for a king. Now, if I were to ask you, about your political opinions. Uh, I know, because I've seen some of your Facebook pages, uh, I know that some of you have very strong political opinions. Uh, If I were to ask you, for example, of the two major political parties in America, which do you believe is best for our country? Uh, Some of you would have some very, don't shout anything out, okay? Some of you would have some very strong opinions, or maybe if I said which party is worse for America. There'd be even some stronger opinions that would exist within uh, the church. Or if I were to ask you, uh, what do you believe about the health care in our country? Or what do you believe about, um, you know, the Supreme Court? Or also, I could ask all sorts of questions, and I know, I know some of you, you have some very strong opinions about how things should be. And, and many of us have the feeling that if people would just agree with us, then, then things would be a lot better off than they are now, huh? Or if I were to ask you about our state government and the state of Illinois and how it's going, you would have some strong opinions. Or if I were to ask you about our local government, you might have some opinions. Last night, my son Austin expressed some political opinions about how our family is being governed. Uh, we were talking about what a TV show we might watch, and we're sitting there on the couch. And, and uh, he says, I think we should have a voting system. Uh, mom and dad each get three votes, uh, the older kids get two votes, and the younger kids each get one vote. And so we begin talking about all the different alliances that could be reached if we do a system like that. And eventually I said, look, I got the remote control. This discussion is over. And why would I cede that much power? Uh, Whitney's not in this service, you can tell. Say different things in second service. Um, we, we uh, all have a sense. I, I think no matter what political party you identify yourself, whether you say I'm more conservative or more liberal on some economic issues, uh, no matter what you believe politically, I think we can all agree with this statement. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Things are broken. Things are even dysfunctional in some very profound ways. We look at our national government and realize things aren't the way they should be nationally. Uh, Austin looks at his family, and as much as he may love mom and dad, recognizes that mom and dad don't shepherd in a perfect way. There's, there are things that are lacking in our leadership, and I would be the first to acknowledge that, and there's a need for God's greater grace there. No matter what area of, of governance you look at, no matter what level of society you look at, you say, this isn't, this isn't perfect. It's broken in some way. Another political comment that was made in my, my family last night, uh, we, as we looked at the clock and kind of realized, you know, what time it was, and I said, you know, kid, there's, there's, there's not enough time to watch a, a movie or anything. There's some other things we want to do with our evenings, so we'll watch some movie trailers. 
you can see why Austin wants to refigure our family's broken system. So I, so we, I pulled up my computer and we watched uh, a couple movie trailers, kind of some fun little things. And one of the movie trailers we watched was from a movie that came out a little while ago called The Avengers. I don't know if any of you saw that superhero movie, but we watched this trailer and <clears throat> there's a, a bad guy in the trailer. Um, I think his name's Loki is how you say it. I think that's right. And uh, Loki, this villain, utters this line as we're watching the movie trailer. And Loki says, he's talking to a bunch of human beings, and he says, you were made to be ruled. And Noah, who's sitting right next to me, goes, that's not true. And the trailer goes on. After the trailer's over, I said, hey, Noah, buddy, um, what, what do you mean? Whenever he said, that's not true. Loki said, you're made to be ruled. And you said, that's not true. I said, do you think that's not true? And the, I asked the rest of him, what do you guys think? Noah said, well, I guess we were made to be ruled, but not by Loki. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, we'll, we'll agree with that, okay? So that's my theme this morning. We were made to be ruled, but not by Loki, okay? We were made to be ruled, though, right? I think you would agree with the statement that, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, but I wonder if you would agree with the statement that you and I were designed to be ruled. We were designed to be ruled by a king, the king of kings. And maybe you would acknowledge that theoretically and say, yeah, I agree that I was made to be ruled by a king, by, by God, and I'll, I'll submit to him. But would you agree with that in practice? In other words, practically, do you live like you are in submission to the King of Kings, that King Jesus has the right to rule every area of your life. And when it comes to your, your family, would you say, look, Jesus is king here, and how I relate to mom and dad is, is dictated by what King Jesus tells me to do. Or, or if you're a parent, what I do with my children is dictated by what King Jesus tells me to do. Or what I do with my finances is dictated by what King Jesus tells me to do. Or would you say, there are areas of my life where I am reigning as my own little king, and King Jesus can kind of have a big picture. He can do the big picture things, but when it comes to some individual areas of my life, I'm king, I rule, I decide. Brothers and sisters, the book of Judges tells us this main idea, and this, this is what I want you to grasp this morning. You and I were made to be ruled by and submit to the king of kings. You and I were made, designed, fashioned to be ruled by and submit to the king of kings. That is an overarching truth of the book of Judges. As we come to chapter after depressing chapter in the book of Judges, we see what it looks like for people who are not ruled by a good, gracious king. We see what it looks like for a group of people to deny God's authority over their lives. And what I want to communicate to you this morning is you see that you were designed to be ruled by and, and submit to the king of kings, that your life will never experience the joy that God desires you to experience until you come to that realization, until you submit yourself to him. You were designed to be ruled by and submit to the great king of kings. So let's look at the book of Judges together. And let me give you a little bit of a context. And, and really, what's interesting is we're going to be looking this week at some negative aspects of not being ruled by a king as we're, we're supposed to be. And then next week, we're going to look at the Davidic covenant, and we're going to see what it looks like to be ruled by the great king. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week, but just give you a little bit of a preview there. So here we are, uh, Judges, uh, 
Judges, the book of Judges, and let me, let me tell you a little bit about what's taking place here. Remember, uh, we've, we've been in the book of Genesis, and we've seen the promise of the gospel in Genesis, and we see in around 1400 B.C., we see the people of Israel rescued by God from bondage in Egypt, delivered by God. We see the people of Israel leave Egypt and about a year later are told to enter the land of Canaan and engage in conquering Canaan. They refuse to do so. And after they refuse to enter the land of Canaan, they spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness and as part of God's judgment. And then they enter the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. And there's that time of conquest. Well, now, as we come to the book of Judges, we're in the mid-1300s, so let's just say 1350 B.C. And the time of conquering the promised land has come to a conclusion, at least initially. And, and now, the book of Judges goes from about 1350 to about 1050, right before the establishment of the monarchy. And during this time, we see the people of Israel ruled by judges. And these judges are men and one woman who are appointed by God to deliver the people. We think of a judge as a person who has a big gavel and a black robe and makes decisions. That's not what a judge is here in the book of Judges. A judge is one who God raises up for a period of time to deliver the people. There are three words that you can write down that serve as an outline for the book of Judges. And those three words are sin, suffering, and salvation. Sin, suffering, you could use the word uh, uh, suffering or uh, servitude. Sin, suffering, salvation. Okay, sin, suffering, salvation. And it's not, when I say sin, suffering, and salvation is the outline of the book of Judges, there, it's not just like a Roman numeral A, Roman numeral, numeral, Roman numeral B, Roman numeral, wait, that's not, those aren't Roman numerals, Roman numeral 1, 2, and 3. It's uh, not letter A, B, C, kind of an outline like that. It's, uh, I was just seeing if you're staying awake. I was not, apparently. Uh, it's not an outline like that. It's more like this. Uh, there's a, in the book of Judges, there'll be a period of sin, and then there'll be a period where there's, there's suffering. The people are placed in servitude under some other people. So there's sin, and there's suffering, and then the last part of the cycle is salvation. God will deliver them. And it's not a, a cycle that just kind of goes around and around like this. It's more of a downward spiral. So there's sin, and then there's suffering, and then God delivers them, and then there's greater sin, and then greater suffering, and then a, a deliverance that isn't quite as profound. It's, it's not quite as, as sharp as it needs to be, and then there's greater sin, and, and greater suffering, and a greater need for salvation. And as we see this downward spiral, you come to the end of the book of Judges, and you encounter a story that is, that is just incredibly grotesque, and, and offensive, and, and terrible. In fact, when I was uh, a little kid and my dad would, would read through the, the Bible with us, we came to the end of the book of Judges, to this chapter, and my dad looked at it and he said, you know what, kids, we're not going to read this chapter together as a family. If you want to read it on your own, that's okay. But the younger kids, I don't want them reading this. They're not really ready for it. I mean, some of you are flipping back to the book of, what, what chapter is that? You know, it's terrible, okay? The terrible things take place in the book of Judges. And then there's a refrain as these terrible things spiral out of control. There's a refrain, and it comes uh, throughout the book of Judges, especially toward the end. It says, as you, as you see this spiral, it says, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
what the book of Judges is teaching us is that we need a king. There's a need for a king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, to rule over us. And you and I, right now, in this moment, are called to be in submission to Jesus Christ as king of kings, as lord of lords. I want us to look at Judges chapter 6. We're not going to be able to look at this in the depth that, that we normally would look at as we go through a chapter. We're going to look at, at the, the big theme of Judges 6 and 7 and 8, and, and we're going to kind of put in the context of the book of Judges. And, and what I want us to do as we look at Judges 6 is I want us to, to see this, this, this pattern that occurs over and over again. I want us to look at sin. I want us to look at suffering. I want us to look at salvation. And as we look at each of these things, what we're going to see is the gospel contained in the book of Judges. We're going to see the good news of Jesus Christ contained in this book. So let's look, number one, let's look at sin. What we see in Judges chapter 6 and really throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that sin is the inevitable result of not knowing and fearing God. Sin is the inevitable result of not knowing and fearing God. Look at verse 1 of Judges 6 with me, if you would. It says, and this is a phrase we encounter in some way throughout the book of Judges, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. Now, why did the people do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, keep your finger there in Judges chapter 6 and turn back to Judges chapter 2 that we looked at just a little bit ago. Judges chapter 2, remember the, the period of conquest is over. The people of Israel have begun to sin. And look at what the narrator of Judges tells us about what's taking place. Look at verse 6. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And so what he's talking about is, remember, the people leave Egypt. There's a generation that disobeys God. They die in the wilderness. The next generation is the generation who goes and conquers Canaan. That's the generation that Joshua leads in the conquest of Canaan, and and it's telling us that generation, their leaders have died. Verse 10 says that. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then it says this, and this is perhaps one of the most discouraging verses of parenting in Scripture. It says, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. What an incredible failure, right? Here's a generation that, that God did amazing things through. He helped them you know, conquer the city of Jericho. He gave the land to them for a possession. And there's all this, this, this potential that this generation has, and they do great things. And then somehow the generation after them fails to know who God is and what he has done. It's a, a stunning failure of discipleship on the part of the parents, right? Last week, I was getting a, a glass of water. And as I went over to the refrigerator with my glass, I first of all got a little ice out of a little ice dispenser, which magically gives me ice. And then I got a little water out of the water dispenser, which magically gives me water. And I, I pulled the cup toward my mouth to begin to drink, and I, I noticed there was a, a piece of, of plastic just kind of floating there in my glass. And uh, if you know me, you know immediately it was 
you know, there's no question as to whether or not I was going to drink that water. I, you know, pour it out, and I, and I, where did this piece of plastic come from? And searching, you know, maybe it came out of a cabinet, and maybe it came out of the magical ice dispenser. And so I, I, I called Whitney. I said, hey, can you, do you recognize this piece of plastic? She says, no. So we, we pull out the ice tray, and, and we, we, Whitney uh, realizes that the, the piece of plastic came off a little uh, thing that turns the, apparently it wasn't magic. Uh, there's actually a mechanical process by which you receive the ice. Okay. Now, my tendency sometimes, whenever, um, whenever something is broken, to think, well, maybe we'll give it some time. You know? So I, I told Whitney, I said, well, do you really think we need that piece? I mean, maybe it'll just get better. And she looked at me, you know, maybe, um, but probably not. We could just, you know, throw it in the ice and see if it magically reattaches itself. You know? It didn't, you know. Things don't naturally fix themselves, right? An ice dispenser doesn't just kind of fix itself. You know, you look around your house and, and things uh, that, that, that break don't tend to just automatically get better. There's, there's a natural tendency for things in your home to deteriorate. The electronics in your home get old and break and deteriorate. The, the walls in your house as children run around and have, have fun, sometimes there's tripping and there's holes that go into the walls or the doors or, or whatever things deteriorate. You have to actively work to engage to make sure that things stay up to, to where they need to be. The same is true in the lives of, of human beings. We don't naturally pursue God. What naturally happens is a deterioration in our spiritual lives. And, and what happens whenever a group of people do not know who God is and what he has done? The inevitable result is sin. And look what happens here in Judges 2 in the next verse. It says, as they didn't know who God is and they didn't know what he had done, the inevitable result, verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the people, from the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. The natural tendency of a child's heart, of a person's heart, is not to serve the Lord God, but to serve false gods. That is why sound, deep theology is so crucial in the life of the believer. Theology has taken a, a little bit of a, has taken a lot of a beating in contemporary Christianity in, in some circles. And the thought process is this, you know, I don't want to be some, some academic guy, I, I want to do ministry, I want to get out there and, and do things, and do things in the name of Christ, and while that's an admirable idea to do things in the name of Christ, what we see in Scripture is that knowledge of who God is always precedes doing things for God and living as God has called us to live. What God tells us is you need to know me. You need to know who I am. You need to study my word carefully because the way I think is not the way that you think. The way that I approach a situation and tell you to live in a situation is not what you would intuitively decide to do in a given situation. Sometimes the things that I tell you to do are counterintuitive. And so you need to know me. You need to know my character. You need to be able to follow my word. There was a situation whenever I became a youth pastor that was, it was kind of interesting. I'd been a youth pastor for a couple months, and some parents approached me, and they said, look, here's what we want you to do. Uh, we want you uh, to take our kids and turn them into, help them become young men and women of faith. That doesn't sound 
too bad. I think we're on the same page there. Uh, we want you to help our children at this time in their lives to understand what it looks like to live a life of obedience to God, a life of discipleship, and we want you to help them begin that journey. I said, I think it sounds great. And then they said, and uh, we want you to do it, and you got about an hour a week. So, well, hold on. Let's think about this. Uh, what do you mean? They said, well, our children are very, very busy. Uh, they are involved in, in uh, studying for school. There's a lot of academic work that our children are engaged in. It's very, very important that our children spend the time necessary to make good grades. And our children are very involved in athletics. And if you're going to be on a team, it's going to require lots and lots of work and time and diligence. And, and so that's what is consuming our children's week. And we need you on a Sunday night to spend about an hour with them and really get them ready for the week ahead. I said, well, what, what are you going to be doing with your children during the week? Oh, we're going to be driving them. We're going to be helping them, you know, try to get to bed at a reasonable hour. We're going to be helping their homework. I said, I think we might have a problem here. I understand, especially as my children get older, I understand the desire for our children to be successful in academics and if they enjoy playing sports to, to help them do a good job in, in those areas of life. But why does it take a child a lot of time to be good at math. It's difficult. They have to exert themselves to understand the concepts and apply them. The Christian life is not different. If we are going to know God and, and understand him, it requires exertion. It requires effort. It requires us taking our, if we're a parent, taking our children to God's word and saying, look, this is what God says about who he is and, and how he desires us to live. And our child says, well, what about this? Oh, good question. Here's what this passage says. Well, Dad, what about this? Oh, good question. That's, here's what this passage says. If we're a young person, it, it means in engaging in God's Word and saying, look, I, I want to know who God is. I, I want to know what He desires me to do. Sin is the inevitable result of not knowing who God is and, and not fearing Him, and we can only know God and fear Him as we exert ourselves to understand what He desires us to do. How are you doing at at exerting yourself and knowing who God is, who in your life is, is pouring into you to help you understand who God is? Who are you pouring into to help them know and fear God? Sin is the inevitable result of not knowing and fearing God. Second thing I want us to see in this passage. Second thing, suffering. Suffering is the means God uses to draw us to himself. Suffering is a means, I guess you could say a means, not the only means, but suffering is the means God employs to draw us to himself. Look what happens next in the story. Remember, there's this, this, this cycle of sin, suffering, salvation. The people of Israel do what's e evil in the sight of the Lord, and then the rest of verse 1 says, the Lord gave them in the hand of Midian for seven years. The Midianites were people who were to the south of Canaan. They had been related to Israel. They refused to conquer Canaan with the Israelites or to help them anyway. In fact, they joined with the Moabites in trying to curse Israel as they come into their inheritance. And it says the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. What are they doing? They're, they're hiding from the Midianites. Now, notice, too, the Midianites are not operating apart from God's sovereign control. This is the text is very clear. Just as God had given the land to the Israelites, now he gives the Israelites to the Midianites, it says in verse 1. 
And what happens? Verse 3 tells us the Israelites would plant crops, the Midianites and, and some of their associates would come and, and they would encamp against them, verse 4 says, and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of the Midian. And what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. The suffering that God appoints for them to go through, placing them in the servitude of the Midianites, is designed to draw Israel to himself. And the next verse tells us about how he does that further. He, as they call out, he sends a prophet to the people of Israel. He, he, the prophet says to them, I love this, this prophet here. He's one of my favorite unnamed characters. Notice uh, we don't know this prophet's name. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his favorite color. We know nothing about this guy. What do we know? We know that he fulfills the essential task of a prophet or a pastor or anyone who wants to speak for God. He says what God says. You know, a a pastor, a, a prophet is one of the most expendable people in the world. You can plug and play a good pastor because a good pastor, a good prophet is just gonna say, here's what God says. And here's what this prophet says. God says, the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians from the land of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So here's what I did for you, God says. I, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you from the hand of all the hand. I brought you from the hands of all those who oppress you. I've placed you here. I drove out all the other people before you so that you could worship me. I told you, don't worship the other gods, and and you haven't obeyed. Suffering is a means God employs to draw us to himself. And what does God want us to do as we're drawn to him? He wants worship. As we saw, as we looked at the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 11, the, the essential requirement that God has for us is to love him and express that love and worship. When I say that you and I were designed to be in submission to, to be ruled by the king of kings, I don't mean a despot, right? I mean that you and I were designed to be ruled by and submit to the king of kings who loves us, who desires us to experience fullness of joy, a joy that can only be realized as we live our lives in submission to him. You have not obeyed me, says God through the prophet. You haven't worshipped me. You've worshipped these other gods. And suffering is the means that God employs in the life of Israel here to help them understand their need for him. If God allowed them to live in contentment apart from him, he would not be a loving God. The same is true for you and I as as Christians. You You come to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we see some very interesting things about suffering there. Um, Paul is talking about the affliction that he's gone through, and he says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
indeed we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. So in other words, they, they were under this intense persecution. They, they felt like life was at an end. Why did God do that? Paul says in verse 9, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians 1 and throughout 2 Corinthians, describes all the reasons that God had allowed them to experience suffering and affliction, persecution. Here's the reality. Unless you have reached perfection, I don't see anyone, I don't see anyone here that's probably reached perfection. Unless you have reached perfection and have attained perfect Christ-likeness, suffering is still a means that a sovereign God is going to use to conform you to the likeness of his Son. Unless you have obtained perfect righteousness, God is still working in your life to help you attain Christ-likeness. And if you're like me and have not obtained perfect Christ-likeness yet, then suffering is still in your future because it is a means that God will employ to draw you to himself and conform you to the image of his Son. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. Maybe some of you are going through some intense physical suffering. Maybe some of you are going through an intense financial crisis in your life. There's a crisis at work. There's a relational rift in your life that is just beyond comprehension. You have no idea. It feels like the sentence of death. Maybe there's an emotional crisis that you are going through right now that no one in this room knows about that is deep within your own soul, and only you and God are aware of the emotional crisis that is going on in your life. And maybe, maybe God is allowing you to go through that as as a result of sin. There's been sin, and now you're experiencing the fruit of sin. And that's God's grace and allowing you to see, hey, this is not the way that I need to live my life. I need to repent, and, and, and suffering is something that God is allowing you to go through to become more like his son Jesus. Maybe you're going through suffering, and it's not the result of your sin. Maybe it's the result of someone else's sin. Or maybe it's the result of just living in a sinful world. I don't know, but I do know this. Whatever suffering you're going through is not outside the control of a sovereign God. And whatever suffering you're going through, God is appointing you to go through so that you will become more like his son, Jesus Christ. Suffering is a means that God employs to draw us to himself. It's true in the book of Judges. It's true in our lives today. Here's the third gospel truth that I want us to see as we look at the book of Judges. Number three, salvation. Salvation is the the deliverance that only the king of kings can bring. Salvation is the deliverance that only the king of kings can bring. Verse 11, we're introduced to the angel of the Lord and a man named Gideon. So there's been this time of sin, there's been this suffering that the people have encountered as a result of their sin to draw them back to Yahweh God, and now there's going to be salvation. And as we look at the story of Gideon, don't make the mistake that we make so many times. Don't make the assumption that Gideon is the hero of the story. 
As you look at the story of Gideon, one truth becomes very clear. Gideon is a flawed person. He is a reluctant deliverer. The true hero of the story is God. Only the king of kings can bring salvation. So look at what happens here. So the angel of the Lord, verse 11, comes and he sits under this tree, the terebinth at Ophrah. And the area is, is part of the land of Joash, the Abizarite. And his son Gideon is, is uh, beating out wheat in the wine press. Now normally you'd beat out wheat on a threshing floor, but Gideon is trying to hide the, the wheat from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, sometimes uh, whenever God says some things, um, I think he's saying them for the purpose of encouragement. He says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And he's referring here to, that expression refers to a person of prominence or a person who, who could have valor. And Gideon is not a person who is naturally courageous, as we're going to see as we look at the story of Gideon, but he's a person that if he submits himself to God and does what God has told him to do, he will be a valiant person. It's kind of like a a self-fulfilling prophecy if you believe it. Whenever my dad uh, sometimes would tell me to do something, and I would say, well, Dad, I I don't think I can do that. That's kind of a lot of work. Or, you know, he wanted me to to rake the yard. And I said, well, Dad, it's, you know, it's 5 o'clock. It's going to get dark. I don't think I can do it. My dad would have this expression. He said, "Uh, the boy who says he can and the boy who says he can't are usually both right. So I would say, so you're agreeing with me right? Because I'm saying I can't. No, I didn't say that. Um, I said, yes, sir, and I'd, I'd get and get the job done. Uh, so God is telling Gideon, look, look, here's what you can do. And Gideon is, is disagreeing. He disagrees with the Lord. He says in verse 13, Gideon said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, if what you're saying is true, then why has all this happened to us? Where, all, where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? The Lord has forsaken us and given us the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord turns to him in verse 14. Notice that it uses uh, the word Lord in, in the sense of the divine being. Uh, Yahweh, it says in verse 14. That tells us that this angel of the Lord, as we talked about last week, is actually God himself, the second member of the Trinity. Yahweh turns to Gideon and says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So who's going to be... The deliverer, it's going to be God ultimately. Uh, Gideon objects again. How can I save Israel? Notice he's focused on his own inability instead of responding to what Yahweh God has said. How can I save Israel? Verse 15. My clan is the weakest, and I'm the least of a weak clan. The Lord says to him again, I will be with you. You shall strike the Midianites as one man. In verse 17, Gideon says, If now I've found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Don't depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And so Gideon goes and he prepares the meal and he sets it before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord tells him to make it like, a, like, a, like an altar. He says in verse 20, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord, verse 21, reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight, and Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and he recognizes, I'm in trouble. I deserve to die. I've seen the angel of the Lord. The first thing that the angel of the Lord tells Gideon to do is to take two 
bulls who've been dedicated to sacrifice of Baal and use those bulls who've been dedicated to sacrifice of Baal and tear down the altar of Baal. And then he tells them to take the wood from an Asherah pole. It's a pole that was dedicated to the worship of the goddess Asherah. And he says, tear that down and use the wood that was dedicated to Asherah to burn a sacrifice for me and sacrifice these bulls that were dedicated to Baal, sacrifice them to me. In other words, God's concern, his first expression, his first instruction to Gideon is that Gideon would engage in restoring worship to Yahweh God. And then as we go through the story of Gideon, and we're not going to to do that this morning, but as you go through the rest of the story of of Gideon, you see God deliver the Midianites into into Gideon's hand and deliver the people of Israel. You see that God is very concerned that people understand that it's him who's bringing about the deliverance, the salvation. Verse 2 of uh, Judges chapter 7, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And so God makes it very clear as we go through the story of Gideon that it's not Gideon who's delivering, but it's, it's God. Why is that? Because salvation is the deliverance that only the king of kings can bring. Gideon, Gideon struggles. As he delivers the people, he rightly recognizes that they should not make him king, and yet even as he makes the decision not to be worshipped as king, he reestablishes worship of false gods. Gideon is a flawed hero, and he's a flawed hero who is followed by more flawed heroes. And there is this cycle that continues throughout the rest of the book of Judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's sin, there's suffering, there's salvation, but then there's greater sin, greater suffering, greater need for salvation. And as you come to the end of the book of Judges, again, that refrain appears over and over again. In fact, turn to the very end of the book of Judges with me, if you would. As you come to the very end of the book of Judges, you see that it ends on a, on a very discouraging note. That verse that closes the book again gives the commentary. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A depressing end to a depressing book. But it's also a book, as we see the darkness and the despair of sin, it's also a book that points us to the hope of a king. A hope of a king of kings. See, all of us have a belief about the ideal political situation our country could find ourselves in right now. And certainly I'm not a defeatist, but I do recognize that even though we live in perhaps what Winston Churchill called the, you know, democracy is the worst, let's see, the worst form of all government except for all the other kinds, right? The idea that in a democracy we're going to take a bunch of people who individually make terrible decisions, but collectively they'll make some sort of good decision, right? As a parent, I know that my, my children make bad decisions. They're, they're not as, as smart as they need to be to make good decisions. There's, there's problems in their life. You know, I can remember my, my kid being a toddler and, and uh, you know, trying to, to uh, help her and do the right thing. And I'd come into the room and, and she'd be sitting there and, and she'd be eating, literally eating bugs, now, what kind of crazy parent would say that a child who eats bugs is, is worthy of making their own decisions about life? I can remember my children, I, I didn't understand why I had to do this, but I had to put up um, 
safety gates over the stairs because these children, these children, uh, as as they're toddling toddling around, learning to walk, they fall all the time. But they come to the top of the stairs and they think, "I got this." And then, like a little slinky, you know, they're tumbling down the stairs. I did not let my children fall down the. I didn't let them fall down the stairs. Okay, mostly they didn't. We did not watch them go down the stairs like a slinky. I'm trying to clarify here. Um, the point is, my children aren't capable of making decisions for themselves. They, they need a, a dad, and, and I am not capable of, of making decisions for myself. I, I need a king that I, I look to and say, I, I, I'm not smart enough to do this thing on my own. I know that I was designed to be in submission to you. I know that in and of myself, I'm going to make bad decisions about life, and there are going to be areas of, of your life where you say, you know what, I think this is the best thing to do as, as a student. I think this is the best thing to do in this relationship. I think this is the best thing to do as, as a parent, and you're going to go to God's Word, and King Jesus is going to say something different. He's going to say, no, you need to do something different as a student. That relationship that you're in is, is not the relationship that I would call you to be in, the things you're doing as a parent are, are not the priorities that I have for your family. And what we have to do is we have to decide. Am I going to submit my, my life? It begins as we place our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, recognizing that, that in and of our, ourselves we, we don't deserve a relationship with God. We deserve God's displeasure but recognizing that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and we, we play, and rose from the dead and we place our trust in him on the basis of his work on the cross, place our faith in him alone for our salvation and then as we've done that, we continue to live a life in submission to King Jesus. There is a way that seems right unto a man but its, it's end is destruction, right? You and I, we're made, fashioned, designed to live our lives in submission to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Judges and the instruction it gives us about how we're to live and what we're to do and what we're to think. And we do look forward to the day that we are in complete submission to your, your King, to Jesus. And we pray that we, even now, strive to be more and more conformed to him and living our lives in submission to him. We thank you for him. We thank you for the life that we have in his name. Pray this in his name. Amen.